0: Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you today. While I'm uh, saying hello, you can turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament this week. 2 Kings chapter 8 verses 1 through 6. Again, that is 2 Kings chapter 8 verses 1 through 6. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. Version, So that might be a little bit different than what you have. But um, we will hear the word of God read to us at this time. The inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. Now Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go with your household and sojourn wherever you can sojourn. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it shall even come on the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came about at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines. And she went out to appeal to the king for her house and for her field. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Please relate to me all the great things that Elisha has done. And it came about, as he was relating to the king how he had restored to life the one who was dead that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her field. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. When the king asked the woman, she related it to him. So the king appointed for her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the produce of the field from the day that she left the land even unto now. May God richly bless. The reading of this is word to our hearts and minds and our lifestyles today. The opening verse of this story recalls a miracle recorded just Four chapters earlier, it tells how the prophet Elisha resurrected the dead son of a woman from Shunem, a little village in the area of Israel near the valley of Jezreel. The chapter also tells us that she was a prominent woman. She had land. She had a big house and she had title. To coin an old phrase, she had it all. But there's one thing that she did not have: she didn't have a son, and her husband is old, meaning that without supernatural intervention, she is going to remain without a son. However, she knew the prophet elisha, she had seen Elisha walking the streets and thinking that he's a man of God, convinced her husband to build a little room inside the house so that when the man of God was in town, he could stay there and have a place to lay his head. Well, one day, while Elisha was staying at her home, he tells his servant Gehazi to call the woman, whereby she tells him that she wants a son. Her need of a son, and Elisha replies from chapter 4, At this season next year, you will embrace a son. Well, she doesn't believe him. But what happens one year later? She has a son. Well, years pass, according to chapter 4, and one day as the boy is working in the fields, he gets a scorcher of a headache. He comes home, he tries to recover, but unfortunately, he dies. Well... Elisha had promised the woman a son, so to Elisha she goes. Whereby Elisha raises the boy back to life in an absolutely remarkable fashion. One of the most curious miracles recorded in the entirety of the Old Testament. This brings us to our story in chapter 8. Verse 1 opens with Elisha speaking again to the same woman. Clearly, the text wants us to recall the woman and the immeasurable bounty of grace that God had poured out on her life. Not only had God made her a woman of great prominence, giving her all her needs and more, but by giving her a son, he even met her deepest desire, and miraculously, so. God had smiled on this woman. For sure, he had done it all. But then it happens. Still in verse 1, Elisha now says to the woman these words, Arise and go with your household, and sojourn wherever you can sojourn, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will even come on the land For seven years. The prophet who had raised her son to life now tells her to take everything that she has, leave it all behind, take her family and the few essentials that she is going to need, and get out of Dodge. And why? A famine is coming, and it's a killer. It's a seven-year famine. It's like the one we find in the days of Joseph. When all Egypt suffered mass casualties, the loss of earthly possessions with locusts and caterpillars consuming absolutely everything in sight. So here's the point. God who had provided everything in this woman's life now comes into her life to turn everything Upside down. I want to ask a question this morning. Has there ever been a time in your life when God turned everything upside down? Relatively speaking, you were doing pretty good. Not only had God met your needs, He had even met many of your deepest desires. Then one day, bam! You look at the unfolding events in these chapters and you have to scratch your head. Did God just do a miracle in this woman's life now to come along and to let the bottom fall out? Why Elisha doesn't even tell her where to go. He just says, sojourn wherever you can sojourn. Lady, if you can find a place where there's some food, go there. The same guy who can raise children from the dead now can't even give decent directions. She's like Abraham. She hasn't got a clue where she's going. But she's just to go. And where did she go? She goes into the dreaded land of the Philistines because there's a place where famines were not as common as they were in the land of Israel. And so there's a likelihood that there's at least some food. Last week... I had the opportunity to share a little bit about what happened in Morocco, where I minister, one of the places I minister. Last year, I helped to start a house church in a nation where Christianity is essentially illegal. And while teaching at the house church on the topic of regeneration, God did a miracle. He regenerated a young Muslim woman. Well, recognizing that God had ministered to her, she, along with her boyfriend, the leader of the house church, decided to now go and minister to others, in this case, two families, shepherds, literally Bedouin shepherds out on the hills of Morocco, with 13 children. The problem is that they have no potable water, no drinkable water whatsoever. So I heard of the need and I raised the money for the project, a miracle in itself, and uh, the project was completed, and at the end of the project, one of the young girls, part of one of the families became very sick, and so the young woman, the former Muslim who became a Christian while I was teaching on regeneration, decided that she wanted to take the young girl to the hospital. It was on the way to the hospital that a crazy driver came around the corner, hit the car and pushed it off a bridge. It careened 15 feet down to the bottom of a ravine and injuries for all three occupants. The young girl especially, unfortunately, was hurt the worst with a broken jaw. All of her bottom teeth were shattered, which meant days of recovery back in the main city of uh, Morocco where the woman, again, the young Muslim woman, now a Christian, became a nurse and took care of this young 13-year-old girl. Well, I have to tell you that at the end of all of this, the people were asking themselves, what happened? Did God just do miracles Did God just do all of these wonderful things now to take everything and to turn it upside down? To create total chaos in the midst of this situation? Well, I'm going to tell you, folks, the Bible tells us why things turn upside down for the woman in our story, and by extension, why it often does in our lives as well. Verse 1. Elisha tells the woman, For the Lord has called for a famine. There it is. The famine was not an accident, a twist of fate, or someone's bad decision. The Lord called for the famine. I don't know where the bottom fell out in your life. If it hasn't, just wait, it will. But the Lord called for the famine. In fact, the name Lord is very instructive here because it's not Adonai, It's not El Shaddai, it is Yahweh, that ineffable name, the unspeakable name God revealed to Moses when at the burning bush God said to Moses, I am who I am, and that is the name Yahweh. Well, what does Yahweh mean? It means essentially that God is self-existent. He just is. He's not dependent on anything in his creation, rather it is creation that depends on him such that he can do whatever he wants with creation any time he wants to do it. In theology, the name Yahweh is thus linked to God's aseity. Now there's a big word, let me explain. Aseity is what distinguishes God from all the idols in the Old Testament. It means that God is self-existent. The reason why the false gods were false gods is because they didn't pass the first test of being God. They were part of creation, not independent of it. Yahweh, on the other hand, is completely distinct. Other times we talk about God's Sovereignty, in this case, often we speak of what's called the creator-creature distinction. And what does that mean simply? It means God is God and you're not. So that he can do whatever he wants with his creation anytime he wishes to do it. Well, someone might say, oh great, he's off in heaven calling the shots and it doesn't affect him no He's self-existent. That's a comforting thought. But you see, it ought to comfort us, and the reason is because there's another meaning to the proper name Yahweh. The name also refers to God's presence with these people. Again, back in the encounter at the burning bush with Moses, God also said, I will be with you. You see the point. God can't do anything about your sojourn if he too is sojourning. The only way he can do anything about it meaningfully and redemptively is because he himself is not part of the problem, but is independent of it. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? We see the same idea. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, his aseity, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. He didn't give instructions. But then he says, What? And lo, I will be with you, even unto the end of the age, his presence. You know, folks, many Christians only want to hear about the happy thing that happen in life, and not that God is also in the position to be able to do what He wants with creation any time He wants to do it to be able to turn lives often upside down. But let me ask a question this morning. When a Christian friend is hurting, what do you think she would rather hear? That God only desires happy times? The problem is a lack of faith on her part? Or that the sovereign God of the universe did this for his own purposes, causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, and because Yahweh is distinct from the creation, can be with her in a meaningful and redemptive way through it all. And in the end, will bring glory to himself, a glory which she too will share in, should she trust on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know. Where life turned upside down. For you. If it hasn't, it will. But what this word of God wants us to know in this particular verse is that the infinite, the mighty, The all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-seeing, the holy, the all-majestic Yahweh, who brought the famine, is also with you in the famine until you see Him face to face. Next we see when life turns upside down, we are to be obedient to the Word of God. Verse 2, So the woman arose and did according to to the word of the man of God. Now you remember before the woman had doubted Elisha when he said, you're going to have a son. No doubting this time she's a quick study. So she packs it all and she goes. Now I want you to put this in context just for a minute. I want you to imagine with me that uh, all of a sudden one day, Adam at your home, the pastor Jaffer's, he comes to your home, knocks on the door and says, Adam, I just want you to take a few things, your family, and I want you to sojourn wherever you can sojourn. You're just going to pick it up and go, right? Probably not. Well, all joking aside, seriously, what an act of mercy. This is, in this woman's life, The leading prophet in Israel coming to this woman on the eve of a killer famine is equivalent to a nuclear-tipped missile coming right at Orange Park and a five-star general shows up at your door and says, Get out of Dodge! The point, however, is that she was obedient. Why? She didn't go because she had learned to trust Elisha. She went because she had learned to trust God's word. Again, listen to the text. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. Not according to the man of God, but according to the word of the man of God. Listen, folks. When the famines of life hit, our biggest challenge is not to get our circumstances to agree with us. Our big challenge is to get our obedience to agree with the Word. In fact, there's an interesting little point tucked away in verse 2 that really highlights this truth. One Hebrew word captures the entire English phrase according to the word it's very important the idea being that our obedience is to be exactly proportionate to the word it's kind of like this bake the cake according to the instructions in baking you can't be close you can't be kind of there you've got to be right on the money or employment according to experience you can't lie on your resume you've gotta nail it exactly and this is what we hear from mary in the new testament may it be done to me What according to your word and so from the old testament to the new testament and we can go all the way into the book of revelation what we find is that our obedience is to be exactly proportionate to what the Word says. There's an imam to Wadi. I heard about him in Morocco. He's known for this interesting statement. He's an Australian Muslim scholar, a moderate. He said, if suicide bombing was a shortcut to paradise, whoever convinced you would have blown himself up first. Well, apparently some people's obedience is not proportionate. The Christian cannot be this way. Whatever the word says is exactly what we ought to be doing. And so when it comes down to it, our obedience is shaped by our particular doctrine of the Bible, what we think about it. One of the things I appreciated so much in the time that we were attending at Pinewood is that at the very beginning of the sermon, and you also hear it here, as you're coming to attend here is that you hear that the Bible is not just a book of fairy tales. You hear three critical points about this Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. First of all, it is inerrant. It is authoritative and it is inspired. Many places, in fact some seminaries. I can think of one out in California that has dropped the word inerrant. But the question is On what basis is the word of God authoritative? Because some councils got together and said that it was? No, the reason why it is authoritative, the reason why it is inspired, is because it is inerrant. It is truth, because God is truth. Jesus had said it so many times. Thy word, in fact we hear in the book of Psalms, is truth. And so the woman was obedient to what was said. And you know, just as we see in the life of the woman, we see God asking us to do some pretty interesting things in our lives as Christians. And here we are, in this place, believing God for a church. And we are surrounded in the land of this so-called Philistine. In a world where the world cannot give us the food, but we have the food of life, it is the Scriptures. Finally, we see that God restores everything that He turned upside down. In verses 3-6, through six, in the remainder of the story, we see that the famine has ended. The woman comes home. And she finds that absolutely everything, her house, her farms, is gone. It is devastated. You ever feel devastated? Well, the woman felt devastated. And we've seen that she is a woman of faith who places her full trust in the Word of God and still she wants her stuff back. She's believed God for seven years. She believed God for a boy when the boy finally came because she took the boy when he became dead back to Elisha. That's some incredible faith. And then at the word of one man, because not that she trusted in Elisha, but because she trusted in the word of God, she goes into the area of the the Philistines, the dreaded Philistines, where where a woman from Shunem, a little village, shouldn't be. Her husband was so old, he's probably not in the story any longer. He's probably died, according to many commentators. And so she is now going to go right to the top, and she's going to get her stuff back. She's believing God for that as well. And so she goes to the king of Israel, King Jehoram. Now what's interesting according to the text is that at the exact same moment that she goes to the king, Gehazi, you remember Gehazi? That's Elisha's servant who was so instrumental in chapter 4 and also in chapter 8 has been summoned by King Jehoram to hear how Elisha had done all these miracles including the raising of the boy to newness of life. At the exact same time that the woman comes to the king, the king has got Elisha's servant and is asking about the miracle. As John Calvin used to say, what a coincidence. So, according to verse 5, just as Gehazi is recounting the miracle and walks the woman, and Gehazi notices and points out the woman, and the king stops. And he calls the woman to himself and he says, Is all of this true about your son? And indeed she recounts the entire situation to him whereby the king orders a high official, an officer in the court, to go now and to take whatever resources are required in the kingdom at that particular time and to restore everything. That the woman lost in her home, her fields, her farm, all of it. Just amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know where, I don't know when, I don't know how. Everything turned upside down in your life. If it hasn't, it will. But what this word of God wants you to know is that despite the loss, despite the struggle, despite the failed expectations, despite it all, there's a king. And he plans to restore all of it back to you in Christ. And although the king has been known to restore many things in this life, the book of Revelation tells us that the day will come when everything that has been lost to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil will be restored unto God's people in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this theme of restoration that brings us to the gospel. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. Death as we see portrayed in the death of the young boy. But God, because he is distinct from the fallen creation and thus is the only one in the universe in a position to do anything meaningful and redemptive about the problem became one of us. The man we know is Jesus Christ. And Jesus did three very important things I want to tell you about. Number one, as our substitute, he lived the perfect life that all of us were supposed to live but did not, thus fulfilling our law mandate before the judge. Second, he died on a cross paying the penalty for our sins so we don't have to. And third, he rose victoriously from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave. And what he did in his perfect life, death, and resurrection is made practical for you when by faith you trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, believing that what Jesus did at the cross, he did for you personally, And that what he did is all you need to have the gift of eternal life. And so in the end, it's all about the king. So permit me to conclude this morning with these words from the book of Revelation. Give praise to our God. All you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reign. Amen and amen. As we continue our service this morning...